It may not surprise you that the theme today is impermanence. (laughs) And I was reflecting on this for a few reasons, uh, partly because of the time of year, that uh, the time of the winter solstice and the new year could be Kwanzaa, could be some other celebration. It's often a time when we are aware more of cycles. We often look at the big picture, have a sense of uh, deepening intentions for the next cycle of time. We may be aware more of the passing of time And I was reflecting on impermanence also because uh, over New Year's uh, I did a a multi-day retreat, personal retreat. And for about half of the days there I was focusing, much as we did in our guided meditation, on impermanence, the moment-to-moment flow of impermanence in my own experience probably half the day, you know six or eight hours a day, being with that flow of impermanence. So I want to explore this theme of impermanence, which is one of the most central themes in all of spiritual practice. I want to explore uh, why it's important, uh, some sense of what we find when we look at impermanence, look at why it's difficult to actually tune in to impermanence, and then point out in a little more depth uh, the different practices that we can do. Hopefully, many of you will want to work with one or more of the practices, and we can come back in two weeks and compare notes about our exploration of impermanence. We call this practice uh, insight meditation, and we may wonder from time to time what we have insight about, or whether we're having insight, (laughs) or when we'll have insight. (laughs) And uh, traditionally, you know, as we've explored at times here on Wednesday mornings, traditionally over the last few thousand years, they're taken to be three, maybe four core areas of insight. We've looked at that um, quite a a bit uh, from time to time. Uh, And so we know that there is a teaching called the teaching of the three characteristics. And these are actually the core areas where we cultivate insight. And the first of these is impermanence. It's awareness of the flow of experience, the fact that everything changes. And this is taken to be something very important to look at. Of course, from one perspective, the fact that everything changes is obvious. You know, few of us would not agree with that, at least intellectually. So we can ask, you know, you know, what's the big deal? Of course, everything changes, right? So that's partly what we'll explore, why it is a big deal. Interestingly, 
I, I found uh, two stories uh, from uh, some of the great teachers, actually, of, of the last generation. One of them was the uh, 16th Karmapa, uh, one of the great Tibetan teachers who died about 1980 or 81. And actually, at one point, uh, came to live in my house for one week. There's a story there, of course. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I lived in a, a group house in the Boston area, which was kind of like a mansion somewhat. Kind of, maybe, no, it wasn't really a mansion, it was just a big house. And we had, we had uh, there were like 10 rooms, and for some reason, the people organizing the trip uh, wanted to have the, the teacher and his entourage, this great teacher, who actually was died like a year later. Um, and he came and they all, we had to move out, so my initial impression of he stayed in my house was kind of like as a guest, not we had to move out. <laughs> but they stayed there, but we had a, we had a one, you know, we had a, um, you know, we had an extended time with him. You know, one of the great teachers in the, in the lineage that comes from uh, Milarepa. Some of the great Tibetan teachers, Milarepa is the one at the back of the room with his hand uh, in the gesture of listening to the universe. And so he uh, once was invited to the U.S. Congress, and a congressman uh, asked him, could you summarize the teachings of the Buddha in one sentence for me? <laughs> I'm not going to make a commentary on it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the spiritual depth of the U.S. Congress, but, uh, but if he, asked, he asked for a one-sentence summary um, from the 16th Karmapa, and without hesitation, he immediately said, everything changes. A similar question was asked of uh, the Zen teacher, Suzuki Roshi, you know, the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, what's the What's the, if you could put the entire message of Buddhism in a nutshell, what would it be? Same answer, everything changes. <coughs> Interesting, isn't it? Right? So uh, it's pointing to something beyond the obvious, a lot, lot of what we'll be exploring. So that's the first area of insight. The second area is the area of suffering, or dukkha. And we've looked at that in a number of times, but particularly in two talks that I gave here in December. And I like to translate suffering as reactivity, or translate dukkha, I should say, as reactivity. Uh, suffering can be misleading because it's not about the unpleasant simply or the difficult. It's about that pushing away uh, and also the grabbing hold that is some kind of resistance to the present moment some aspect of not being okay with the present moment, which can manifest in these two forms, either really wanting something or really not wanting something, right? And we call that dukkha. We call that reactivity. And that's the second area that's very crucial to look at. And that, that's more obvious to us, right? That's more obvious how uh, our reactivity is very connected with our own distress at times, right? and the ways we get caught or stuck or their interpersonal difficulties and so forth. That's more obvious. And the third area of insight is this sometimes mysterious area that we have explored a lot here 
called anatta, translated usually as not-self. Sort of the mystery of being an individual, but the teaching points to the way that we are an individual, but we're not as separate as we think we are. And that is, as we've often seen, can be a confusing area and a challenging area. That's the third area of insight. Um, And as we'll see with the exploration of impermanence, these three are quite closely connected. When we actually look closely at impermanence, we learn a lot about the other two. We learn a lot about reactivity. We learn a lot about the nature of the self. I'll just say that and we'll come back to that theme as as we explore impermanence. Generally, we can explore impermanence in two ways, two main ways. One of them is, is that we can look at impermanence on a more gross level. That is, uh, we can, the other one is that we look at impermanence more um, experientially on a moment to moment level. So first a little bit about the sense of impermanence on what we might call the gross level. Again, that's where it's most obvious to us. We know that everything changes, that impermanence applies to Democrats and Republicans. (laughs) All of the presidential candidates are impermanent. The presidential race is impermanent, (laughs) you know. The Islamic State is impermanent. Um, The success of the Golden State Warriors is impermanent. Would you like exceptions to (laughs) impermanence? And I was thinking about that. I uh, during my the retreat that I where I was practicing permanence. I I had uh, um, during retreats many people have quite vivid and sometimes intense dreams, and I had a a lot of uh, 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 access to dreams. I I think I've had that for all my life, but um, during one of the dreams I had during the retreat was that uh, I was just alone on a basketball court with Stephen Curry, (laughs) and we were just dribbling, passing to each other, just dribbling the length of the court, and I was fully his equal. And at the end, we had expressions of mutual respect. So that was a nice dream to <laughs> a nice dream to wake up to, right? So any you know, the psychologists in our group can give me your interpretations at the end of the session. But uh, anyway, so so we know that impermanence is there on 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 a more gross level. Everything changes. This class will begin and end. You know. And we also, we also know that um, you know impermanence is something. Sometimes something we appreciate when something is difficult, we can remember impermanence. And sometimes it's something we don't like, like when something that we want, we know that that will be impermanent. That relationships are impermanent. That we ourselves are impermanent. We arise and pass away. Right. Um, and impermanence occurs really at um, different rates. Some things are very transient and some things last a longer time. Right? There, there was a, a wonderful uh, uh, interaction 
probably quite a while ago, between uh, two poets, uh, Gary Snyder and his friend Lou Welch, um, who died a number of years ago. And they were, I think, camping probably somewhere in the Sierras or the Sierra foothills. And they were, they were around a uh, campfire. And uh, let's see, um, after a long period of silence, uh, Lou Welch uh, said to Gary Snyder, Gary, do you think the rocks pay attention to the trees? And Gary responded, I don't know, Lou. What are you driving at? <laughs> and he said, well, the trees are just passing through. And then later, uh, Gary Snyder wrote a poem about these different levels of impermanence or different rates of impermanence. You know, think, think the trees, you know, the trees, the rocks, the mountains, my thought, you know, different, very different rates. So he, this is a short little poem by Gary Snyder. As the cricket's soft autumn hum is to us, so are we to the trees, as are they to the rocks and the hills. That can bring about a certain sense of poignancy, right? That, that there, are these, there are these different rates. And um, in many traditions, looking particularly at impermanence as it applies to our own experience and our own uh, mortality is, has been very, very central. And we find this in many traditions. In the, in the Jewish tradition, in, in one of the Psalms, there's a well-known line where it says, teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And in many traditions, actually attending to impermanence at the level of our own being is taken to be a way to awaken wisdom and often to awaken a sense of spiritual urgency to really contemplate uh, our own mortality can be, can be very important. Many of you know the story of the Buddha that he was living more or less in luxury, in a palace, protected by his parents against anything unpleasant. You know, unpleasant weather, unpleasant experiences, surrounded by pleasure. And he suspected, after he was of a certain age, that there might be more to life. And it's said that on four successive nights, he ventured beyond the boundaries of the palace, which you can take as a metaphor, right, for moving out from a protected life. And he moved out, and on successive nights, he met what came to be called the four heavenly messengers. The first was that there was a person who was ill. The second night, he encountered an old person. And he had never experienced these before. The third night, he encountered a corpse. And this connection with illness, aging, and death sort of shook him to his core. And the fourth night, he encountered a wandering spiritual seeker. And 
he's something reverberated deeply, and this led him to leave the palace. We might say leave the life of ease and relative unconsciousness and to seek understanding, to seek something deeper. And so this contemplation of um, impermanence at the level of our own being was a tremendous uh, force that supported his search. And again, many practices uh, guide us in that direction. Many, many traditions, uh, probably all, almost all spiritual traditions, have some way that looking at um, our own impermanence, can it make us ask questions of what's important? How am I leading my life? And I, uh, for several years, 10 minutes a day, I reflected on impermanence and death, including my own but including those of people close to me, but also just ordinary impermanence. Change uh, on a very ordinary level without it you know, having to be quite so meaningful even. Right? And it was a very helpful practice. It's done, again, a lot of different traditions. In, um, in Tibetan tradition, reflection on impermanence and death is one of the four preliminary practices that, we, that one does <coughs> before one enters into deeper practices. And again, the purpose is particularly to arouse a certain kind of urgency. There's, um, these are the five remembrances of the Buddha that are in many uh, Buddhist communities. These come particularly from Thich Nhat Hanh. And these are reflected on every day in that community. I am of the nature to grow old. There is no way to escape growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health. There is no way to escape ill health. I am of the nature to die. There is no way to escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature to change. There is no way to, to escape being separated from them. And the purpose here isn't to be morbid or to say that impermanence is all there is or that impermanence and death and all, is all there is. And I think in our culture, if we're doing those practices, we probably have to be careful that it doesn't become imbalanced. And for many of us, we might complement that by really tuning into beauty and joy and what we love. It's probably more, not so much about focusing on the impermanence and death, but it's really about what are my priorities? That's really the deeper purpose. What are my priorities? How am I living? There's a line in a, in a similar set of reflections from a text by the Buddha uh, called Ten Subjects for Daily Reflection. And I'll just read a few of these. The days and nights are relentlessly passing. How well am I spending my time? Right. So it's really about priorities, which for me was also something that very much comes up on retreat. Right? Um, uh, or when one takes a break. You know, it's hard to really stay with these important priorities when we get busy and we all know this. It's again, I get that message over and over again being on retreat that I'm too busy. And I was talking with Eugene Cash, who's also a teacher. He was a teacher at this retreat. And we were saying, how do we live as meditation teachers? You know, because in some ways we, we are sometimes just as caught up in being busy as everyone else. And shouldn't we slow down? And I say, yes. 
and it's it's almost always what I get when I do retreats, you know. And so, um, reflection and impermanence can really help in that way. So it's really partly meant to take us to uh, look at what's important. Then there's the reflection and the exploration of moment-to-moment experience, moment-to-moment impermanences, which is what we did in our guided practice. And it's actually very simple, uh, very accessible, and can make a huge difference, right? It's really, uh, you know, and so especially when we do it over time, every day, at least for some time every day, doing the practices much like Uh, we did in the guided practice. We can tune in to the flow of arising and passing at the level of different senses. We can be with the um, sense of sound and just stay with sound. Watch the arising and passing. Again, nothing special needs to happen, but we actually tune in to change. We can be with the sense of uh, sensation in the body. Watch the flow of sensations. We can be with thinking. Very interesting to notice thinking. You know, and we can especially study this in meditation. You know, I would find sometimes I'd be meditating, I would notice thinking. It was almost like my thinking is sometimes this little monitor that's just sort of tracking everything, particularly to track whether anything pleasant or unpleasant is happening. <laughs> right? it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting. I'd just be sitting, being with the breath, in, out, watching the flow of impermanence with the breath. And then it's like, my thought occurs, yes, there's an itch in your nose. It doesn't, my thoughts didn't say you're, but they would say itch. And then I just keep on in, out with the breath. Shouldn't you attend to it? Just itch it. It's okay. <laughs> and as you can just watch this, it's almost like, um, you know, it's almost like this little uh, kind of image, like, you know, like, you know, like the cranes have these little, um, cabins where the person kind of operates the whole uh, mechanism. It's almost like there's this little figure like on my shoulders kind of telling me, whispering in my ear, hey, just, just touch that itch or, you know, you know, your shoulder's hurting. Yeah. Okay, just stay with it. But there's another sound that's sort of, that goes, you know, it's not so good to be with your shoulder like this, you know. So we watch the thinking. It's very fascinating because you can see the way it's almost like the thinking is sometimes almost creating a sense of self, right? There's just this flow of sensation, and then there's commentary on it, and moving into the conceptual world. And this is what we study. So you can start to see how it's actually fascinating to study impermanence. We get to see how liking and disliking impacts our experience. But we're studying this basically at a level where nothing too dramatic is happening. You know, it's like the big drama is about my itch, right? Not too, not too intense, right? But we get to study the, our experience like this. We can watch where is their commentary about experience? How much do we stay with the flow? What, how do I start to move to a conceptual world? Very, very fascinating to study, right? To watch that. We can just be with the flow of taste at a meal smells and just watch that. See where the mind comes in. See what we start to get a glimpse of is how there's this almost like this uh, flow of experience and we build up a kind of constructed world out of it that we live in more or less. 
part of the aim of our practice is to get back to this more basic level and see how experience gets constructed. There's a way in which, as, as infants, we don't live in that constructed world yet, right? Uh, the psychologist William James says that the child lives in a blooming, buzzing confusion. You know, and gradually starts to have a sense of pleasant, unpleasant, me, you, and so forth. Gradually, with the developmental cycle, moves into uh, the ability to conceptualize, to think of self, to think of other, to get the full range of language use and so forth, and gradually moves away from immediate experience. And with the meditative process, for the purposes of understanding and greater freedom, in a way we reverse that conditioning process. And it's fascinating to study. You can, it's fascinating to study this, to see how we enter into a constructed world. You know? And it can be a little bit disorienting as well. Oh, you know? But we come back to this more basic level, which has actually a tremendous level of power and beauty. We're with the sunset with much less mediation. We're with beauty. We can actually be touched much more deeply in a certain way. Come back to a, a much more of a sense of immediacy. So we notice particularly that certain aspects of our, of this fl- impermanent flow are really important to us. Namely, what? That which we find pleasant and that which we find unpleasant. You know, some psychologists say that 98% of our experience is relatively neutral. And the 2% we zoom in on, right? <laughs> you know, and again, there, there are reasons for that that are, that are very pragmatic, you know. Uh, but it's, it, here we're really just studying that process. And the study of impermanence can really take us into that study. Do you see how we start to also see something about where we're reactive? When we study impermanence, I can see how I'm reactive towards the pleasant or the unpleasant. Do you see how we start to have glimmers of how the self is constructed? I'm a person who likes this, who doesn't like this, who has these thoughts, who goes this way, who, and so forth. So it can be very, very uh, fascinating. And so we, we do this really we, we engage in this study uh, <clears throat> of the impermanent flow, really, for a few reasons. I've mentioned some of them, but I think it's helpful to see. I, I came up with five main reasons why studying impermanence closely is really important. The first is that we develop more wisdom. We can see clearly the process that I'm describing. We can see our own experience much more clearly. We can see how things arise and pass, including our reactivity, including our sense of self. We have much more of a sense of the construction of experience. We see more that which previously we took for granted, and previously we were living more or less on automatic, and now we can see more closely into the subtle dimension of experience. And it's taken that out of that comes wisdom, comes clarity. We can see a lot more where our choices come from. 
and we can come hopefully to wiser choices. There's also, and this is very important in the teachings, there's a sense that when we really watch the, the flow of impermanence and get really familiar with impermanence and watch things come and go, watch the pleasant come and go, watch the unpleasant come and go, that we won't grab hold so much of the pleasant and won't push away so much the unpleasant. If we know that everything is changing, it may let us let go and actually be more in the present moment and live life more in the present moment, being with this changing experience at really at the only place where we can really meet it, which is in the present moment. So we, it may help us to let go to some extent of grabbing hold, let's say, of this intention for this relationship. It doesn't mean that we let go of the relationship, especially the letting go is about we let go of the grasping. And so we can still enjoy, make choices, appreciate this relationship, this work, but we may not grab as much or we may not push away as much because we're aware of that flow. You see, there's a... This is from one of the discourses of the Buddha. If we would perceive impermanence deeply, there would be no grasping, no confusion, no self-centeredness. We would be liberated and not cling. So that's part of the intention to help us let go. So concretely it might mean if I'm really tuned into impermanence, I might, if I'm you know, facilitating a meeting, I might not grasp as much to getting this agenda item to happen because I'm aware that things will come and go, meetings will come and go. So that's, that's, a, big, that's a second core purpose for studying impermanence. Then there's that, that matter of urgency, that looking at impermanence can give us a sense of urgency. Can I really Go for what's most important to me, especially we're reflecting on impermanence and death. Am I living as I wish? What adjustments do I make? Am I taking in too much that's not at the core of what's important to me? And we need, we sort of need some space and time to do that, don't we? When we get busy, that's very hard to do. And so for me, you know, uh, practice goes against the grain of the culture in many ways. This is a very busy culture, right? And most of us are very busy. Even people who are retired complain of being overly busy. Maybe maybe you've heard those conversations um, uh, in yourselves or others. And, you know, I I sometimes joke that uh, even among spiritual practitioners, many people, if you actually ask them to be honest, would say, I'd rather complete my to-do list than be awakened. (laughs) You know, and on my, um, actually, um, when I do retreats here, and actually when I teach here, I was just teaching the Metta retreat, co-teaching, that just ended two days ago. And I come down uh, at least once a day and go to the uh, bench that uh, my, uh, that we put up for my father when he uh, died about 10 years ago. We have a bench here. 
and it's right, uh, it's right on the left as you kind of near the, the bell as you, as you come out. And I go down and visit with him. And as I've sometimes said, I think here, I, I talk with him. And I talk with him and usually he just gives me guidance. And I'm not going to say metaphysically what exactly is happening, but I, I, I get guidance that I, don't, I wouldn't get for myself. And usually it's just a few words. And one that was coming really strongly towards the end of this last teaching, I could go down and um, the, it's like practice guidance for me. It was like present in the heart, no rush, radiance. And that's a wonderful guide. Present in the heart, no rush radiance. Right? And that's, that's not easy. Right? That's not easy. Uh, uh, we get busy. It really, really is a segue to, I wanted to say a few words about uh, why we don't see impermanence clearly. A few reasons why we don't see. And then I'll talk about uh, ways to practice with impermanence in, in more detail. So why why don't we tune in so easily to the flow of impermanence? Again, we know impermanence intellectually, but why don't we tune into the flow so well? One big reason is that we live in a largely conceptual world. We live in a conceptually mediated world, a world of concepts, of language, which of course is very crucial. And there are good reasons why we use language. But we are often only in the world of language and we get so caught in our concepts that we can't really tune in to that flow that we can tune into when we meditate. Because in meditation, as I was saying, to some extent, we learn, especially in this culture, how not to be so dominated by concepts. And really to use thinking, language, concepts more as a tool than as our master. You know, I always think of uh, Achan Buddhadasa, the Thai teacher, who asked what his view was of Western civilization. He said, lost in thought. And so we live in that kind of conceptual world where, you know, we, um, uh, the language tends to make us see more impermanence than there actually is. Think of being experientially with a tree. And we know from a scientific point of view that the tree is always changing. But when we, and we may actually notice that over time the tree is changing, even our experience of the tree is certainly constantly changing, right? We see it from this angle, from this angle. Certainly our experience is changing. Well, all of that kind of gets reduced to tree. You know, it's a simplification for pragmatic purposes, which are very much to be respected. But we don't really get at the impermanent flow because when you live in that world of language, we just go tree. And we tend not to tune in at those other levels. Sometimes we do but often we don't. The philosopher Wittgenstein said, we are bewitched by language. He was a philosopher of language. 
He said, we're bewitched by language. Another philosophy, Nietzsche, said he was looking at the process of perception and its relation to language. A nerve stimulus first transposed into an image, first metaphor. The image imitated by a sound, second metaphor. We believe we know something of the things in themselves when we speak of trees, colors, snow, and flowers. But we possess only metaphors of things that do not correspond to the original and essential entities. So we live in this different world. And so another, another, another related reason that impermanence is hard to look at, again, we're dominated by the pragmatics of things, very much related to language. We're dominated by um, our busyness, you know, kind of almost like a continual doing, continually following the to-do list. Again, a lot of this is cultural. What would it be like to live in a culture where there was no rush? And maybe, maybe we have pockets of that at certain times in our lives. You know, I know there's the slow food movement, <laughs> right? But what would it be like to have a less rushed culture? You know, I think there are other cultures which are less rushed. And maybe we've been in them and been impacted by them. Maybe a no-rush culture is connected with long-term sustainability. A lot of people want to go in that direction. Because clearly to kind of meet some of the, particularly the climate issues, we might have to have a different relationship to consumption and doing. It's interesting, isn't it? And so, um, what might it be like to live in a different way? So I think there are large cultural issues here. This is from Thomas Merton, the Catholic contemplative from like, uh, this is from 55 years ago, 56 years ago. He said, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which we most easily succumb, overwork. 1960, he wrote this. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many people, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. This frenzy kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. Another reason why impermanence is hard to see is that we are dominated by our reactivity. We're dominated by grasping after what we want and pushing away what we don't want. It's a very strong force in our lives and it makes it very hard to see impermanence. There's a line from a poem by uh, Galway Cannell which goes, you cling to me, you cling to me hard as if clinging could save us. You cling to me hard as if clinging could save us. So we are dominated by that reactivity, makes it hard to see impermanence. And then last point is that we, to, we need a certain level of concentration to actually notice. Things are happening quite quickly in a subtle way and often we, we are just distracted and we don't see so clearly. Our minds that can be developed to see more in meditation and through other means, we don't see so much. We don't have that level of depth to notice change. 
that comes with a more concentrated mind. So practices to work with this. I've mentioned some of them and we've done some of them. With, uh, with that level of gross impermanence, we could take on a practice to just reflect on impermanence and death 10 minutes a day, maybe right before your meditation. You might want to take that on. I found it of tremendous value. Again, not aiming to be morbid, just reflect on impermanence. The seasons, something that's happened during the day, how things arise and pass. And, and also, at one point, coming back to reflect on our own death and the death of, the death of others. So we can, we can practice with that. And there are a lot of other practices we could do with death and dying that are done in many, in many traditions. And then there are these uh, mindfulness practices, these very simple practices that we did in the guided practice. We can tune in to uh, the different sensations as we did. We can just stay for five minutes or 10 minutes or longer in the meditation and just stay with sound. It's actually a lot of fun. You know, one of the things which focusing on impermanence does to our meditation, it can bring out a lot of interest and curiosity and fascination and energy. We talk sometimes about how meditation sometimes can be very calm, very pleasant, and very dull. Does anyone relate to that? (laughs) And when we bring in what we call inquiry, things can really change in that way. They can really be um, very, very interesting. And uh, it can be a way that our, our practice uh, deepens. Um, and so to give attention to sound, to focus just on sensation. Again, we can do this for three minutes, for five minutes, just be with sensation. We can say, okay, for the next three minutes, I'm just gonna track the arising and passing of thoughts. We're not trying to make anything happen. We're just observing. We're being more informed about impermanence. There's no conclusion we're supposed to come to. We're just tracking. And we can learn whatever we learn. We can do it with thinking. We can, that is, think, being mindful of the flow of thinking is harder. Being mindful of the flow of seeing is harder. Right? Just do it for a short time. Do it for two minutes. Have soft eyes with the seeing. We can bring all that together. You know. We could just stay with one object. You can stay with the breath and just be aware of the impermanent flow of the breath, the changes in the breath. You can be aware of that. You can just be with a tree and watch things changing in your perception. You know, watch, watch change occurring. Um, you can do this for, uh, you can work, you can do this for uh, a few minutes. You can do, have this be half of your meditation as we did it. You can do this for a week. Do it for a week and see what you discover. I'm inviting people to do this until I come back again, uh, which is two weeks, but you can do one or both weeks. Either one is okay. Uh, You can bring all the senses together, either with eyes open or eyes closed, and watch the impermanent flow. Easier to do first with eyes closed and just watch that impermanent flow. One of the practices that I found very powerful to do on retreat was metta practice, loving-kindness practice, or compassion practice. I was doing loving-kindness practice informed by impermanence. It would be like I would uh, be in, in a, you know, I'd be like in the dining hall and I'd be bringing metta for four phrases to each person. But I would bring in the, the I'd bring in my metta phrases 
my way of doing loving-kindness, but then I would say each person has gifts. Each person is arising and passing. Something like each person is precious. Each person has gifts. Each person arises and passes. It was very poignant. You know, it was really to, to be in the heart, which is really something I haven't focused on so much. And looking in a permanence, very important to stay with compassion, to stay in the heart, to realize that uh, looking in impermanence deeply is, uh, can be hard in some ways. It can take us through ups and downs emotionally. So those are some ways of practicing. It can be very simple, but it's more staying with it over a period of time. So I'm going to finish just with a few further thoughts, and particularly pointing to how when we, when we are with impermanence, in a continual way, it can lead to a deepening of practice. I think those of us interested in deepening our mindfulness practice, this is a great way to do it, very helpful way to do it. And that deepening can keep going. I'll just mention two ways that the deepening can go yet further. One of them is just to see more clearly the constructed nature of things, to see more clearly how our sense of the solidity of objects, even of ourselves, arises and passes, and is a kind of construction. It can can be a little bit disorienting at times to feel that, even a little scary, but we tune into that as we deepen our sense of impermanence. We tune into that sense of the world being a little less solid than we thought, and a little more constructed. Which, of course, the other side of that is, there's a lot more freedom than we thought. (laughs) You know, that bad habit, which I thought was solid, is actually impermanent, (laughs) right? And so we can actually notice that, and it's actually constructed, and it can be deconstructed. You know, the uh, scientists these days talk about that as neuroplasticity, which is another way of saying impermanence. (laughs) Interesting, right? Plasticity means it can change, right? Interesting, isn't it? That's the big insight for recent work on the brain, that things can change. (laughs) Very interesting. So we can be with that. Sometimes we can actually tune in more to our awareness and tune into that awareness continually being with the flow of changing phenomena. In the Thai forest tradition, there's sometimes a teaching to tune in more to that awareness which can stay and be aware of the changing flow. And in a way, that awareness can just stay there and be there and notice the change. And then last thing I'll say, another way that we deepen, I think is really to go further with what I was saying further, that there is a deepening of compassion. If impermanence is especially training in clearer seeing, in wisdom, there's also a way that it has to be deeply connected with and supported by compassion, by, by the good heart, for a number of reasons that I've given, but not to hold impermanence in a one-sided way. There's a danger that we can just get into focusing on impermanence. And it can even be intellectual. Oh, yeah, everything's changing. Nothing matters, right? That's a distortion, right? And that's why the wisdom has to be connected with compassion. I'll just end... With, it's actually another uh, 
series of reflections and then a short poem by uh, Gary Snyder. This is from a recent collection. Uh, It's a poem called After uh, Bamayan. Bamayan refers to the uh, Buddhas in uh, Afghanistan that were destroyed by the Taliban, I think in April 2001, not long before um, 9-11, right? And uh, do you remember there were those large stone Buddhas in Afghanistan that had been there for what, uh, you know, 1,500 years? I don't, I don't remember the exact number, but a very long time. And um, someone wrote to Gary Snyder saying, basically, what, do you, what is everyone so concerned about? What about impermanence? Yeah, they're impermanent. What's the big deal? Right? And um, um, he responded in in a way that I'll get to in a moment, but he actually quotes a famous haiku by the Japanese haiku writer Isa, who lived at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, and who wrote a very famous haiku after the death, uh, after the death of his uh, um, son, who died young. And in that famous haiku, Isa quoted or used a line from the famous Diamond Sutra, which gives a lot of metaphors for impermanence. It talks about a dewdrop at dawn. It talks about, you know, a flash in the sky from the lightning as ways to tune into impermanence. And he picks up on the line about the dewdrop and that that you'll see in, in Isa's haiku and also in what and how Snyder responds. So this is about avoiding that uh, one-sided sense of impermanence by always connecting it with compassion. So here, here's the passage. Someone wrote to, someone who was a, I think a writer on Buddhism wrote to him and said, in response to people being concerned about the destruction of the uh, Buddha figures at Bamayan, he said, Dear Gary, well, yes, but the manifest dharma is intra-samsaric and will decay. Signed, R. <laughs> and then he responded, Ah, yes, impermanence. But this is never a reason to let compassion and focus slide or to pass off the sufferings of others because they are merely impermanent beings. The haiku goes, this is from Isa. This dewdrop world is but a dewdrop world, and yet. Now, Snyder, and yet is our perennial practice and maybe the root of the Dharma. We have a little bit of time if there are any reflections or questions, observations about anything. We have a microphone.
this may be slightly off topic, but I noticed that when you read the five remembrances, you read four of them and not the fifth. And I have always personally had a difficulty in understanding how that fifth remembrance yeah, I read the relates first four. as the relates yeah. the same way the other four do. So if you could comment on that, it would be helpful. The fifth remembrance is my actions are my only true belongings. I cannot escape the consequences of my actions. My actions are the ground upon which I stand. It's basically saying that how we respond moment to moment is the essence of our lives. That can be misinterpreted, that, those lines, as if uh, uh, I cannot escape the consequences of my action. It can sound like we're kind of predetermined or doomed, but the, I interpret this as the continual responsiveness moment to moment is our life. It's the essence of our life. It's, it's really, again, a lot of this is pointing to more present centeredness. And that's what, I'm, that's what I hear in that, in that one, that last one, that it's really about the present centered response is the core of our life, the core of our practice. Or another way it was said was by a Zen teacher. I sometimes uh, give this quote. Zen teacher from the 9th century, I think, was asked, what's the essence of all of the teachings of all the ancestors? And he said, appropriate response. He didn't say, he didn't give some cosmic or metaphysical answer. He said, appropriate response, which means appropriate response moment to moment. That's it. So it's being present, responding as best we can out of our wisdom and compassion, moment to moment. That's what our practice is. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking about how, what a wonderful gift it is to get older because you get to witness more and more impermanence in yourself. And in particular, I was thinking about memory. Yeah. And you're walking downstairs thinking, oh, I have to write a note to so-and-so. And then the next day, you go, oh, I didn't write that note. And, and then the next day, you think, oh, I have to write a note to so-and-so. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is interesting. Um, um, you know, I think it applies more generally to, um, to aspects maybe of loss. When we get older, there is loss of some capacities. It's obviously very differential. Some people, uh, the loss, you know, there can be loss of physical capacities or mental capacity, especially uh, right towards the end of one's life. But there's also loss throughout life. And it really is, what's my relationship to, to that loss? And, uh, you know, like, what's the essence, you know? So, um, you know, I can see in some people who are quite old, who have lost a lot of memory, the people who have lived in a certain way, well, certain capacities are not there, but sometimes even the love gets stronger, right? Isn't that interesting? Like it's almost, it actually can be a gift in a certain way because there's a more of a focus on what's most important. Like, you know, I won't put too much energy into trying to remember. But I can put energy into love. It's interesting, you know, it's like the, um, that can be quite beautiful. And can, and can be, you know, can be a way to practice also. 
you know, to, to work with it rather, take, rather than taking loss and gain as you know, curses and blessings. Just how can I learn with that? And, and of course, um, you know, it's not, it's not um, guaranteed, but um, you know, my own ex- experience is that I, I think I'm wiser than I used to be. <laughs> I think that getting older, there is something about learning from experience, right? And and so, I mean, that's um, most cultures are based on the fact that the the older ones are the wiser ones, right? Uh, interesting. So there's a whole area that we could look into, and I, I think there'll be in the next years. There are, it's already starting, but a whole revolution in how we look at elders. I think it's happening. You know, in this particular lineage, by the way, that we're following that comes out of South Asia and Southeast Asia, that we're really connected with here at Spirit Rock, is called the Way of the Elders. Right, all right. <laughs> okay. The baby boomers are getting older, so we've been kind of guiding things. The baby boomers are getting older, so, and uh, may possibly lead the way on uh, changing how we look at uh, aging. It's already happening. Yeah. Anyone else before we finish? Anyone else have something to be shared? Maybe last one up front. Um, before today, when I heard the, when I would hear the word impermanence, I would get like a kind of a mild sick feeling yeah. when the word uh, came up and. And um, now I, I see, I think, that it can be an opportunity and a, um, a positive thing. And um, not to be Pollyanna about it, I'm sure it's painful too, but, yeah. uh, but that it, it does have a positive evolutionary function. Yeah. Thank, you, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, it's uh, my experience uh, working with impermanence. Uh, as a practice, you know, that done many hours a day, was that it was, it actually had a lightness to it, a sense of freedom. Of course, there are moments when we look at uh, loss or, you know, death and so forth, where we go through a process. But I think the end result is, the aim is always more freedom. And it's holding everything without as much tightness or, or um, fear. Actually, in the old text, the Buddha said that one of the results of um, really being fully with impermanence is that there's no fear. Yeah, so those are very, 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 very positive. And so, yeah, it can be, and, and just that uh, working within that very ordinary level that I was suggesting, either, you know, uh, either the reflection on impermanence and death, five or ten minutes a day, or the being with impermanence moment to moment through focusing on certain senses, that can actually, I have found it personally, those have been very uplifting. And so um, my invitation is, how many of you would like to work with impermanence in some way, at least one of the next two weeks, possibly both weeks, and then come back? Okay, wonderful. So we can come back, compare notes in two weeks, and let's just sit for a moment to close.
and bring to mind whatever intentions you have coming out of this morning, perhaps related to practicing with impermanence. could be something else, though. And then we end with the traditional dedication of merit, remembering that our practice is very much for ourselves, but also very much for others. And may the fruits of our morning and the fruits of our practice be offered to ourselves, to each other, and then beyond these walls out into the world for the benefit of all beings, which then circles back to us because we are part of all beings. Yay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.